Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Final hours here on this beautiful Friday in Music City. Hope it's great wherever you're listening or viewing Outkick 360 across the Outkick network. With Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton. We're sixth back, and, baby. Sixth and Peabody, We're our back. location. Uh, our thanks to Bobby Carpenter and Eddie George for joining the show. Plenty of headlines coming up. Chad's got his thoughts and map, I'll say the road map, for what could be the SEC nine-game schedule and the 6-3 model with the opponent schedule, including, I'm assuming here, Chad, Texas and Oklahoma moving forward. Yes, Okay. correct. So we've got, also, we've got that coming up. We'll get into this later, but I, there's a very obvious answer to what the SEC should do in, in terms of scheduling, especially that we know they're going to move to nine games. The 6-3 model is the way to go. I'll explain why, and I'll give you a clear example of what every team's constant opponents would look like, possibly, in this nine in this six three format. Hit us up on Twitter at Outkick three sixty. Brent Hubs of VolQuest.com is with us, and he joins us each and every week at this time. We hit Tennessee and big SEC topics when noted, uh, and of course he and Austin and the entire crew at VolQuest have you covered on all things. Big Orange, and more. Brent, hope you're doing well. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday, guys. Hope everyone's well and enjoying uh, a great day of weather. And uh, in Knoxville, they're getting ready to enjoy a, 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 an evening of baseball uh, where you've got fans lined up around Lindsey Nelson Stadium trying to get in and a block party for those who can't get in. It's a nice scene. Uh, hats off to Tony Vitello and his program for what they have created over the course of the last five years. Uh, a lot of fun in Knoxville right now. Big game tonight. How tough of a ticket is it, actually? It's pretty tough. I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a tough ticket. It's a hard sellout, and um, not, not a surprise that it's a hard sellout, but uh, there's a lot of people hanging around, a lot of people tailgating. It, it's... It's really interesting what baseball has, has become at, at Tennessee, how Tennessee fans have embraced it thanks to Tony Vitello. And uh, kind of we're seeing a growth in college baseball, I think, around the country with some of the coverage and everything that it's getting. But it, it's certainly um, a big deal in Knoxville when you're the number one ranked team in the country. Uh, everybody's looking at you, everybody's talking about you, and everybody's. Uh, a lot of people aren't liking you too well, but that's okay with this baseball team, that's for sure. And what's remarkable about this this run by Tony Vitello with this program, Brent, is that they're still way behind most of the conference in terms of facilities and stadium and, and everything else. I know it's improved a little bit since he's been there, and it's about to improve a lot more, which makes me think if he's been able to do this in his first five years and build it to this point where they are a juggernaut in college baseball this season – what could he accomplish with the same resources as some other baseball powers in the SEC? Well, it's a great point. And I think a couple things beyond just facilities. One, facilities attract um, you know, more fans, more revenue, all of those types of things. And there's some things that they're going to do for the student athlete to, to help them from a training standpoint as well. But I think Tony Vitello also deserves credit for 
uh, embracing NIL the way he did uh, July 1 when it started. And I think when you talk about leveling the playing field in the SEC, when you talk about how much it got, costs to go to school at one place compared to the other, different loopholes that schools have to put you know guys on scholarships in their entirety, different things like that. This Tony Vitello is used to NIL to help level the playing field. People will be shocked. To, to know some of the names that are going to be in the lineup tonight for Tennessee that are paying part of their way to school right now. Um, and, and that's changing because of Tony Vitello's embrace of NIL. Uh, and, and it's also um, the, the fact of the matter is he loves to recruit. He's done a great job recruiting, finding talent early. Uh, the COVID year helped them. They didn't lose as many people to the draft as uh, you've seen in years past. And people want to play for Tony Vitello. They got the transfer shortstop from Kansas today because he wants to play in this program because this program, maybe some other rival schools don't like what it's about or, or how it looks, but there's a lot of kids out there that, that love the way that this Tennessee baseball team plays and this program goes about their business. So Tennessee fans are convinced that the media hates them, thinks about them all the time, and is out to get them. At all turns. And and honestly, Brent, it's tough to argue with Tennessee fans when you see what happened with Troy Eklund last week on a call on, this is not an ESPN Plus game, this is on big ESPN, where he falsely states that a player for Tennessee has tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs and goes on to say that the entire team will be tested the next day to see if they're eligible moving forward. We got an apology from Troy Eklund. We've heard nothing from ESPN on this, but when things like this happen, it gives more firewood to Tennessee fans to burn that belief that everyone is out to get them. <laughs> what did you make of what happened on ESPN with that? Well, I mean, from a broadcasting standpoint, and I don't know who his sources were, where he came from. I think we're all reminded and should be reminded daily that, that Twitter can be dangerous. Uh, what's a fake account? What's a real account? What what's somebody know, not know? You, you don't want to use Twitter as your source, uh, particularly if you're record, reporting a story of that magnitude. Uh, that, that's different than an opinion. That's different than an analysis of something. Uh, you're reporting a story where there's a lot of privacy issues involved there, health issues involved. You better have that one buttoned up tight and, and, and lock, stock, and barrel before you go out and make those kind of accusations and say what they say. Uh, what he said. I, I applaud Evan Russell's family for the way that they handled it and the way they went about it and, and, you know, kind of forgiving and moving on as quick as they did. I don't think as a parent, I would have been able to do that. Uh, but, but hats off to them for, for the way that they handled it. And, um, that's, that's a, that's something you just can't, you, you shouldn't do in broadcasting. In my opinion, you better have that completely verified before you start throwing out some, some serious accusations that he threw out in, in that broadcast. As for Tennessee fans, listen, I, I think Tennessee fans are, are, are much like a lot of Tennessee teams. They're at their best when they got a chip on their shoulder, right? Uh, this Tennessee baseball team has been at its best when they've got something to be mad about. Somebody says something. Somebody tweets something out. Somebody says, you know, talks a little trash from the dugout. Whatever to get this team going gets them going. I, I think you go back and look at the best Tennessee football teams. They're the ones that find a way to have a chip on their shoulder, that that they take some minuscule quote and turn it <laughs> turn it into an Armageddon. Everybody's out to get you bulletin board material. And, and, and I think Tennessee fans are 
Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're tired of not being successful and, and they're, they're tired of getting beat up over not being successful and they're in their moment right now. And they're certainly going to, going to defend their program and, and try to have their heyday. They, they've been an easy target because of not things they've done, but things that have happened at the university of Tennessee, they've, they've been low hanging fruit for a lot of people to, to talk about, uh, th- for many years now. Well, Tennessee's certainly successful in baseball right now. They've been very successful in men's basketball over the years, especially recently, Let's talk about football because that's what really gets Tennessee fans fired up and gets them on that disrespect card uh, with, with football. When you look at this team now, Brent, going into this season, how much of a benefit is it to have a clear-cut starting quarterback preparing for everything with this team with Hendon Hooker where you had a lot of uncertainty at the position a year ago about who was going to start? We all believed it was going to be Joe, Joe Milton. It was to start the season – but there's no doubt about it. This is Hendon Hooker's offense. How much has that helped this team? I think a lot. I mean, I think that you look at anybody at any level of football, whether it's the high school ranks, whether it's college or the NFL, those teams that have an established quarterbacks are the ones that everybody points to as a team that's had, that has a chance to be really successful. And I think when you have an established guy – who, who is emerging as a vocal leader as well as a, a leader through just his actions, people gravitate and follow. And, and I think Tennessee's kind of been wayward for, for a while because they haven't had that voice on offense to follow. They have that now with Hendon Hooker. I think he's got a real expectation for his receivers in terms of how much film they need to study and that you don't blow off a seven-on-seven seven volunteer workouts. You show up for them. And those are the things that you need to have. And that's why an established quarterback is so important. And that's why I think when you look at teams every year in the top 10, top 15, most of those teams have an established quarterback, uh, it, which is why so many people are, are looking, uh, you know, look at those teams and, and give them a chance to be highly successful because they know who they have coming back. There's exceptions. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but but I think anytime you have an established, successful quarterback, it helps you in your offseason, and it also creates you know, a lot of expectations outside the program as well. Brent Hobbs of VolQuest.com, our guest. Chad, I'd like to preview our discussion that we're about to have on the 6-3 model that you have by bouncing the 6-3 model for Tennessee and their, what who they would face in the SEC, the three mainly with Brent to get his response to the nine game schedule. Yeah. My, my Tennessee scenario, Brent, this is, this was taken from, I know there were some Kentucky reports about who their constant opponents would be or what was being discussed. And then we've seen it in a number of different places, but it would be Alabama, Vandy, Kentucky would be the three constant opponents for Tennessee. What do you think of that from a Tennessee perspective? Well, I mean, I think Tennessee fans are going to look at that Alabama thing and, and say, you know, that's that's not the that's not the fairest agreement necessarily <laughs> that you're playing that team that's well, at the top. How about right Kentucky now. and Vandy <laughs> for um, the other two you know, every I, year? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty good, right? I mean, I think that that's where Tennessee fans would be happy with with that from that standpoint. Um, I, I find this whole conversation fascinating from the standpoint that. One, the SEC can't come to any kind of agreement in, in spring meetings. There's this continued debate on what they're going to do. You, you've got you've got some coaches out there, Nick Saban being one of those, who's thrown out the idea of playing ten conference games, which I think is is way too much. I don't think the television money is as big of a factor as I thought it would be in adding an extra conference game 
Um, I, I thought that would be a big difference or a big factor that TV would be heavily involved there. I don't think there's a big financial impact to playing an extra conference game. Uh, so we'll see where, where this thing lands. You know, where, where do where are people in preserving uh, traditional games and where are they in not preserving traditional games? Georgia fans have been doing a lot of debates. Uh, they've been having a lot of discussion, which is more important, preserving the Florida game or the Auburn game? Because I don't think anybody wants to preserve both uh, under this new model. Uh, and then you every now and then have somebody throw out, why didn't you just keep divisional play, move Auburn and Alabama to the east and throw in your two new, te- two, two new teams in the Western Division and go play football? Why do you got to change anything? I think it's clear divisions are going. Uh, and, and so we'll see what happens. But to your point, if that's your three and you're rotating your other six, I think Tennessee fans will be okay with that. Brent, uh, take us a layer deeper on well, on the extra conference game and, and the finances not necessarily being what we would expect them to be. I'm with you. I, I would think you know the NFL didn't add the extra week of play because they wanted more football. It was because of right. the extra week of programming and, and content that only the NFL could provide. The SEC adding the extra conference game is a programming that only the SEC can provide. Um, why, why wouldn't it add more revenue TV-wise? But because those games are already televised. Now, it might. I mean, c- could you get a bigger – could you get a bigger package from Zaxby's or somebody if you're if you're not having, you know, a couple of those dud games that you're that you have out there anyway? But with the NFL adding an extra game, you're adding an extra week to the season. By adding an extra conference game, you're not adding another game to the season in a year where or in, a, in an agreement where every game is on television in some capacity. Of course, one team has to do, or every team has to do one game a year, which is streamed only, but the rest of those games are on TV. So I I think there could be some additional ad revenue, but I don't think it's significant like it was in adding an extra regular season game to to the NFL. I thought that TV would have more, would, would probably have more of a bite in that deal in terms of, hey, we want an extra SEC versus SEC game as opposed to Tennessee Ball State on Thursday night. And, and I think they probably do, but I don't think to the point that they're going to step in and say, hey, we're going to tear up the deal and add X number of million dollars into it if you play an extra game that way. I, I don't think it's that kind of significance. So I think the TV stuff is a little bit of a wash. I still think they're going to end up at nine games when it's all said and done. Though. Yeah, and you know, I, um, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said uh, because they're not act- adding the extra week. Although I do think there's value in not not necessarily the opener on a Thursday, but like middle of October, early November, not playing you know some Northwestern State versus Alabama and having Alabama play Missouri, like or or just as an example, like there there is sure. there there's more of a TV value there for me just because there's more eyeballs on the product. There is. And, and, and again, I mean, I think your, your ratings numbers would be better, but I don't think it's significant dollars to the point that that is a huge factor in deciding eight games versus nine games. Again, I think they're going to go nine, you know, but, but if you're at eight and you stay at eight, do you protect the, the legacy of the conference a little bit? Because you're not beating up on each other. So you got more bowl teams, you know, likely more bowl teams. You can still schedule some home and homes or some neutral site games with some other power five teams and other, you know, and other conferences that gives you a little more freedom to schedule that way. 
not as much freedom when you have nine conference games like that. That's the big part of the discussion, I think, between eight and nine. What is ultimately better for the conference? At eight games, is the conference, does the conference perception look stronger than at nine games when you're beating everybody, beating each other up? Now, if you're going to expand the playoffs, the SEC is going to get as many in as anybody is ever going to get in. We know that. But what looks better for the conference? you got a bunch of teams that beat up on a Power 5 school from another division, you know, from another conference, and they don't end up beating each other to death all season long by playing that extra conference game. Is it that big of a deal at the end of the day? I, I don't know. But I think that's why the discussion has uh, – some of the discussion in Destin was not just about, you know, six and three or, or, or whatever the number is. It was also about do we definitely want to go nine? Or, or, do, or is there a real discussion point for continuing to have eight conference games as opposed to nine? Brent, on the way out, today is Derek Dooley's 54th birthday. Do you have a great – Derek Dooley story that pops to mind that you can tell on the air? A great Derek Dooley story that that pops to mind. Well, I mean, he, he was the king of quotes. Um, when you talk about, you know, um, what, what was it uh, about? Shampooing uh, the hair. Bathing, yeah. shampooing the hair. He had the, he had the ceramic orange dog that weighed about 500 pounds that they pushed around on a cart. Um, the wheelchair. He had the con- yeah, he, he had the wheelchair, obviously. <laughs> Uh, and the stool on the sideline. By the way, uh, inter- I, I love the guy. Like I, I would, I loved being around him behind the scenes because he was full of quotes. But he was the same dude behind the scenes, at least from my vantage point. But you were with him much more than than we were, for instance. Yeah, I mean, he was he was fun. I mean, now it was at some other people's expenses, you know. Of course, but, but he 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 was certainly fun. Um, we wrote at VolQuest that on, on a Sunday afternoon that that Derek Dooley was not going to be retained, that that he was done. This was two weeks, I guess, before the announcement, or maybe a week before the announcement came. And I'll say this for Derek Dooley, and I've always said this about him publicly. He handled that story, what we wrote, with me with as much class as anybody I've ever seen, because he, he could have absolutely done whatever he wanted. You know, he could have come at me. He could have made it personal. He could have said I was wrong. He could have challenged me. He, he could have tried to cause me issues with, with re- partnerships and relationships I have on campus with people or whatever. The only thing he ever said to me was he said, you were unfair in not giving me a heads up that you were going to post that story because my kids had to learn about it from what you said instead of me giving my kids a heads up that these types of stories were coming. Unbelievable class through that. Unbelievable class. I saw him when he was uh, at Missouri. He came back through. We had a great visit before he went into the coach's box. He was, look, he tried to be the AD. He tried to be everything but the head coach, right? And and he made a bad hire with South Sinceri. He's obviously not been a head coach since. But I will say this. He was classy in how he dealt with me and everything. I don't have anything bad to say about Derek Dooley other than he didn't win enough football games to be the head football coach at the University of Tennessee. Yep, and uh, he was with the Giants with Joe Judge. When Joe Judge was fired, he's now back on the staff. Uh, he's paired up with, with Nick Saban again. So uh, he's back in uh, on Saban staff in, in Tuscaloosa. Brent, thank you as always, man. We appreciate you. Tell Austin we said hello. Uh, and to tell Darren Ravel hello on our behalf. And uh, we will uh, chat next week with you. All right, guys. Y'all have a great one. All Thanks, right. Brent. There's Brent Hubbs of All Quest. Coming up, Chad, you unveil 
your 6'3 model for the SEC? My 6'3 model also, I want to piggyback off something that Brent said about not being as much money in TV as he thought. Um, We can get into both, but I'm curious if the top media provider for the SEC and their biggest partner in ESPN, they're losing subscriptions by the thousands. At some point, TV is going to be tapped out, and there's not going to be a lot of other options, which is going to drive down the price for TV rights for the SEC. I'm not saying it's going to go way down, but the capacity to just continue every four or five years to milk as much money as you want out of TV networks could go down and impact what we're going to talk about in the next segment. We'll discuss. There's a major topic with this because the SEC's sitting on a gold mine compared to others with, with all this. All of this straight ahead on the Friday edition of Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. 60. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. We're back, Getting you baby. to the weekend. Getting you to the weekend. Um, and a preview of what we're going to be up to this weekend coming up in about 20 minutes. Uh, right now, we talk the future of the SEC as we see it and as Withrow has, is about to lay out to you, uh, putting some thought and effort behind the scenes to lay out a nine-game conference schedule and a 6-3 model, which tends to be how everyone uh, sees a schedule model going when the conference, I think when the conference moves to the nine-game schedule. Yeah. Especially with Texas and, we'll, and Oklahoma coming in. We'll get into my idea of what, my idea based off of what Brent Hub said about it not being as much television money or television interest as he thought in a nine-game SEC season at another time. And Hutton, I appreciate the compliment to say that I put a lot of work and effort into this. I'm going to be completely honest. I know the SEC. I've been watching it my whole life. I sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil, and it took me about 15 minutes to go through the entire conference and try to get three opponents, one of which is a rival of some sort, and then two others that are doable games for the opponent. The opponents make sense, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to give one team a gauntlet every single year. I'm not trying to give a good team three easier games every year. And we know the nature of the SEC. It's cyclical. Teams are going to be good one year and and not so much the next. But that's how I tried to come up with this. And here's what I came up with in terms of the schedule that we're going to look at right now. All right, so let's start with Alabama. Hutton, we can go team by team here on this list. Look, Alabama is a, a dominant program in the history of college football, and they're certainly dominant right now under Nick Saban. So Tennessee is one constant opponent. Tennessee-Alabama, right now it's the constant East-West matchup. They're going to get Auburn every year also. I'm not going to have a 6-3 model that does not feature the Iron Bowl. Yeah, it's in got it. It. you have to have the Iron Bowl so every year. Alabama-Auburn, Alabama-Tennessee happens every year. And opponent number three is Texas. Now, if you look at this list, Alabama fans are going to say, wait a minute, it's pretty difficult. It's a pretty difficult three-pack. 
every single year, to which I say tough, you're Alabama, deal with it. You've won enough national titles, maybe spread the wealth a little bit, you'll be okay. Arkansas is next up. And Hutton, you jump in and tell me any thoughts you may have well, the spread, on this. The spread the wealth, deal with it doesn't fly with me. Um, just because if you're trying to be fair to everyone, being fair to everyone includes Alabama. Well, let me say this. There's no way to be fair to everyone. Someone's going to get the raw end of the deal because the imbalance of yeah, great gets, programs yeah. and not so great programs and the fact that Alabama – look, right now Tennessee's an easy game. They've beaten Tennessee every year since 2007, and Tennessee's been down. So I could easily argue while Tennessee should bounce up more – that's a, that's a win every year. It's been a win every year since 2007. They beat Auburn most of the time. Texas hasn't been good for a while. Um, so, yeah, program-wise, I get it. If you're an Alabama fan, you're saying, wait, Tennessee's a top-10 all-time winning program. Auburn's our biggest rival that beats us a lot. Texas is an all-time program also. Well, and also, you know, just for Alabama's sake here, um, because we, we want – the common opponent. We uh, see we the, the fans. We we uh, as SEC fans, we want those annual rivalry matchups. Auburn's got to be on the list. The history between Alabama and Tennessee puts the Vols on this list because of the East-West matchup and what we've seen over the years, going back to the the '90s era of all this. Uh, the Joey Kent, Peyton Manning touchdown connect, like all a uh, first play of the game, all that factors in. Uh, Texas is fascinating with the annual matchup with Bama here, too. Um, I, I like this for college football. Uh, that, that's, you don't love that, it if you're a Bama fan. No, though. but but again, yeah. like, um, and no matter my, my, my also my response as we continue here, because we we have several other to go through. Um, it's it's going to be viewed as lopsided no, no matter what fan base is looking at this at the top, I'm saying. Yeah. Because someone's going to get Vandy. Sorry, Clark Lee. Someone's going to get Kentucky. And the, I'm basing this off the history of these programs. Someone's going to get Missouri. And then some are going to get Auburn, Alabama, Tennessee, LSU, who you expect to be there. Georgia, who you expect to compete at the top of, of, of the conference versus those who are trying to compete to go to one SEC championship game. Well, and I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Just expand it out. Multiply it times three. The scenario we have right now is a constant East versus West rivalry. It's not fair that Tennessee has to play Alabama every year and Vandy gets to play Ole Miss, but I'll argue this. There's a reason historically Vandy and Ole Miss are matched up and Tennessee yeah. and Alabama are matched up. Sure. So multiply that theory times three when we're looking at this. It's not going to be fair, but I'm looking at history. I'm looking at rivalry games that matter. And I'm looking at the, the best way we can get to a solution that's not going to offend everyone, right? So you are, there's going to be inequalities within the schedule based on what I just said, just like there are now with the constant East versus West game. Arkansas, I think this one's pretty easy for me. They play South Carolina every year in their East-West rivalry. Yes. They came in the league the same year, 1992. Keep that. Ole Miss and Oklahoma. No big issues with that for Arkansas. Auburn. They're going to play Alabama every year. We know that. The longest-running rivalry in the South is Auburn versus Georgia. And some of the best games among yes, rivalry Yes, that is matchups. the longest continuous game in the South. So, I kept Georgia on the schedule for Auburn. Now, in doing this, that's two juggernaut games every year for Auburn. Yeah. I got to give them a break. 
And sorry, Bulldogs fans, but Mississippi State is the second worst historic program in the SEC in front of Vanderbilt. So Auburn gets Mississippi State annually as well to go with those two juggernaut games. Florida. I love the cocktail party. It stays. Florida-Georgia will play every year. Kentucky needs one of those rivalry games. This is more of a Kentucky rival with Florida than Florida with Kentucky. So I'm giving Florida-Kentucky. That's also a bit of a break for the Gators because I'm giving them LSU, which is another game I love, East versus West, constant opponent every year. You're going to see some similarities to that East-West constant opponent on a lot of these teams throughout the schedule. Georgia, they get Auburn for the reasons I just said. Longest-running, continuous rivalry in the South. They're going to get South Carolina. Sorry, South Carolina fans, but this is Georgia's one break but this on also the schedule. Makes, this also makes sense. Yeah, and they played South Carolina every year right now. And then Florida. You keep the cocktail party for Georgia. Yes. Yeah, Can, that, I, I like that. Again, Georgia-Auburn. If we're thinking about the matchups here, the rivalries that you want every single year instead of every other year, uh, Georgia-Auburn is not one that's mentioned a lot, but that's one I'm, I'm watching. And, and then the cocktail party must remain. In fact, we it must go back to being referred to as the world's largest cocktail party. I want that officially in a bullet point of the 6-3 model. Yeah, and Davey Hudson points out, you also play the other SEC teams every other year in this format. That's better than once every five-plus years that you have yes. now. So that's, that's the big benefit is you're getting every team cycling through on the rotation quickly, uh, which is great. Okay, there are some that I'm just going to roll through unless you have a big objection okay. to it because I think – some of these are perfect. I don't think anyone should have any problem with this schedule for some of these teams. Kentucky's one of them. They get Vandy. They get Florida. They get Tennessee. They get three current East opponents every single year. And they get Vandy every year also. No objections to Kentucky's schedule. Do you have no objections? No, I mean, that, that makes – I'm looking at the, at the ones that make sense for me with Kentucky specifically – Kentucky-Tennessee, which if you're looking at just sheer number of games that have been played over the history of college football, they've played a lot. And we, we know the recent history of Kentucky and Florida. So I, I want to see that. Honestly, the, the Kentucky-Vandy thing is um, I you know, half dozen here, six the other way, right? But yeah. uh, Florida-Tennessee, they make sense for the Wildcats football program. Yeah, look, I mean, some of these – they're yes, kind of throwaway right. games. I got to give someone a constant sure, opponent, sure. and it's not going to be. Obviously, they're all not going to be as high profile as some of them. LSU A and M high profile game for LSU. There are three constant opponents. A and M, one of them. I mentioned Florida. Their constant opponent from the East will be another Arkansas. Kind of their break in the schedule. Looking historically again, Ole Miss Egg Bowl stays. Ole Miss Mississippi State Must. constant opponent. I'm giving them Alabama in part because Alab- uh, I-, I like Ole Miss-Alabama, but I also wanted to give them a tough game, all right? Uh, not that all these games aren't going to be tough for Ole Miss. Understand where I'm going with this. Mississippi State and Arkansas are not historic powerhouses in college football or the SEC. So I can't give them a third team that's not a powerhouse. Right. So yeah. their third team is well, going to be Alabama. Well, and th- no matter no – matter where they are on the season. I'm watching the Egg Bowl. I'm tuning in to see what's happening in the Egg Bowl. So that that is a must. And then after that for Ole Miss, um, I, I love it for the Saban-Lane Kiffin aspect of this, but we're looking at a model that's going to last 
in, in theory, uh, a, a lifespan beyond those two individuals. And I may have mixed one or two things up here because Ole Miss, Alabama plays, if Ole Miss is playing Alabama every year, Alabama's playing Ole Miss every year, and I've got Alabama playing Tennessee, Auburn, and Texas. So I'll go back and look at that. But we'll go down the okay. list some more. Okay. See what I'm saying? <laughs> On yeah. that matchup. Mississippi State, they get Ole Miss every year, constant opponent, Egg Bowl. They're going to get Auburn. They're going to get one of the newbies, Oklahoma, every year as well. You okay with that, Hutton? Yes. Mississippi State? Yes. Missouri. Texas A&M is going to be tough. It's a tough annual game every, every for Missouri. Every is going to be tough for Missouri. Exactly. And that's why I want people to look, look at this through the lens of what normally happens, right? What normally happens in college football, in the SEC – historically, that's the best basis of information we have is what teams have always done. Mm -hmm. Missouri's had some flashes where they're really good, and they're going to have more flashes where they're really good. They also historically are not one of the top teams in the SEC. But we've seen them at the top of the SEC East. Yes. So So I'm giving them A&M, and I'm giving them two East opponents, Vanderbilt and South Carolina as two East opponents. Oklahoma, one of the newcomers to the SEC, coming soon. Oh, I wonder... I wonder who they're matched up against. Oh, gee, I wonder who I would put at the top of the list for Oklahoma. Maybe the Red River rivalry? Must stay. The Red River shootout? That's going to stay. Oklahoma and Texas every year. Mentioned Mississippi State with Oklahoma. The Sooners will get State. Oklahoma will also play LSU annually. So two really tough games. One historically not-so-tough game for Oklahoma. South Carolina. Arkansas, constant opponent in the West. Missouri, mentioned that matchup, similar programs in a lot of ways, and then Georgia for South Carolina. So again, South Carolina, not a historically great program in football than the SEC. What did I do with them? I gave them two other not historically great programs within the SEC, Arkansas and Missouri, and what did I do with the third one? I gave them Georgia, who right now is the best team, best program in all of college football. All right, Tennessee. For the Vols, they keep the in-state rivalry with Vanderbilt going. They get Kentucky to the north, and they get Alabama. So Tennessee... The team up north. Tennessee, (laughs) yeah, the team up north. The team that Matt Jones loves. (laughs) The Kentucky Wildcats. Look, people are going to say, well, this is really beneficial to Tennessee. I would come back and say what Brent Hubbs said. Oh, they get to keep playing Alabama every year. Great a team they haven't beaten since 2007, and <laughs> practically no one can beat. So they do get that. But I will agree with you. If you're looking at constant opponents every year, can't do much better than Vandy and Kentucky. Historically, Mark Stoops, great job. Doing well with Kentucky now. That's a tough game for everyone when they play them. That's usually not the case. So Tennessee gets a bit of a break mm-hmm. with Vandy and Kentucky, not so much with Bama. Texas, Red River shootout stays. Oklahoma, constant opponent. A&M, no-brainer. They hate each other. Must have Texas, A&M. Texas A&M must play every year. Their third opponent, Ole Miss. For Texas A&M, they get Texas every year. They get Missouri every year. Those two teams came into the conference the same year. Constant opponents from the other side. And their third game, a very tough one against LSU. Finally, Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, every game is going to be tough for Vandy. We know this. They are the bottom feeder of <laughs> SEC football historically. I'm not telling Vanderbilt fans anything they don't know. 
So what did I do for them? I gave them Kentucky and Missouri every year. Two other teams are not traditional powers. And I don't think Vandy fans have any problem with this. They want to play Tennessee every year. That's their Super Bowl. I, That's their biggest rival. Yeah. And they've had some success against Tennessee in the last decade. So Vandy, Tennessee stays every single year. All of this makes sense. The, the in-state rivalry is what makes sense for Tennessee and Vandy. Same goes for A&M and Texas. Uh, same can be said for Alabama-Auburn, right? So I, I want those state rivalries within the Southeastern Conference. Um, I also fully admit there's not a perfect way to keep your common opponent, right? Like your annual opponents um, on the 6-3 model. But I like, I mean, to me, there's going to be less complaints if you're trying to restructure this because we're going to a nine-game schedule. Yes. And because you're going to play these opponents every other year at worst. So that's why you could throw any model you want out there for me. I I am signing up for the nine-game schedule, um, and, and I'm making sure that within the structure of the calendar, the college football calendar, that we don't have these random lulls in, in these weeks where in week nine of the college football season – there's maybe one or two legitimate, quote-unquote, SEC game of the week. I want the SEC game of the week to compete against the other SEC game of the week that came in second, and there'd be some debate about well, it. Some of the, sometimes in, in, uh, on the homecoming weekend, it's just not nothing. the case. Yeah. yeah. And that's what this, uh, this model can provide us. Well, it can, and again, keep in mind, and this is a, a key point here, you look at those three constant opponents, and that's one factor for the schedule every year that you're going to get. And I don't think anybody's going to complain about those games happening every year. You've got a bunch of huge games that we just went through right there. But the beauty of the SEC with one more game a year in a nine-game season, think of all of the great matchups you get every week, like Hutton just said, in every other year. So the strength of your schedule is still going to come down to it sometimes – random cycles of teams cycling up or down when you get them on the yes, schedule. Yes. So six of your opponents, again, that is two-thirds, that is 66% of your schedule, is the factors will be randomly who you get that year and randomly how good is that team the year that you draw them. But such is life. That is football scheduling. You don't know. When you schedule a non-conference opponent, you have no idea how good they're going to be seven, eight years from now. They could be national championship good. They could be the well, bottom of their conference now. But I think big picture, what, what the average argument against any, oh, this is too tough or too easy, the big picture, we have to realize, at worst, the college football playoff is, is expanding. At worst here, for, for the money that's going to be made off this. Uh, at best, in my scenario, they're branching off and doing their own league and we're coming up with a super conference that actually goes into some negotiating against whatever the NCAA is doing, college football-wise, I'm specifically mentioning here. Um, but at worst, we're going to see more than four teams. So uh, if you're playing the nine-game schedule and you're worried about whether or not you could compete for a national title, I, I think that's out the window. This, I think the nine-game schedule allows another SEC team to get into the playoff easier as it is right now because there will be a team that doesn't have to play in the SEC championship game, which is not going anywhere based on the money that it makes for the conference, and that can qualify for the 
for the college football playoff by not even playing the extra week in theory here. So I don't think it necessarily hurts you by playing the extra conference game. I'm specifically mentioning from the SEC perspective, not another conference here, because where a loss can, you know, condemn you in the Big Ten at the wrong time, in the SEC, it doesn't always have to affect whether or not you're getting in the college football playoff uh, year in and year out, especially if you're moving to 12 to 14 to 16 teams. Coming up, we wrap up the week. We tell you what we're up to tomorrow. And uh, A.J. Brown has tweeted again. Yes. Now kick 360 My rolls favorite on. Favorite time. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And we are back tomorrow across all of our video streaming platforms for the Outkick Network. We are live with Outkick the Tailgate from Protective Stadium for the USFL. Myself, Chad Withrow, looking forward to week nine of the United States Football League, and we will be live starting at 3 o'clock Central Time tomorrow afternoon, 3 to 5, bridging the gap between the New Jersey Generals, who will be in the postseason, taking on Jeff Fisher's Michigan Panthers, and followed by... Kevin Sublin's Houston Gamblers against the unbeaten Birmingham Stallions. Uh, those games on the NBC properties tomorrow. NBC and Peacock, followed by USA. And what's the doubleheader that starts at noon? We go live across the Outkick Network at 3 o'clock Central Time with a number of guests. Uh, everyone from, for instance, Jeff Fisher will be on the show to Baron Corbin of the WWE and a lot of things in between. It's going to be fun. Mike Riley. Mike it's Riley be, it's, from a, the it's a good guest list. It's going to be a fun show tomorrow in Birmingham. A.J. Brown What tweets. has A.J. Brown said? All right, let me first I've not read seen the, this at all. I, well, let me read the, the initial tweet here because that's going to probably take up all of our time. Um, I just saw the initial response. Let me, actually, let me do it this way. Here's his response to um, a Tennessee Oilers avatar. For the love of God... I was the best receiver to play for your franchise. Shut up and move on. You mad at the wrong person. That's from AJ Brown to Henry Given Sunday on Twitter. Okay? Yeah. It's in response to that, that person telling him, for the love of God, just stay off social media. And the reason why they sent that to him is because AJ tweeted this. Today I learned that the percentage on the weather doesn't mean it's the percent of a chance it's going to rain. It means it's the percent of the city is the amount it's going to get hit with rain. Meaning, like 50% rains means that how, that's how much the city it will rain in. Um, AJ, it's the percentage of likelihood of precipitation in your area, not how much of the city will actually receive that precipitation. Uh, so he says that he was, it was a conversation he was having with a girlfriend. But that, that led to some random account tweeting, telling him, hey, uh, stay off social media. And then AJ responds by saying, I'm the best receiver in the history of your franchise. 
you should watch who you're talking to. You should respect. I'm paraphrasing. You should, for the not, le- not respect your elders. On. Shut up and move on. with Respect with the greatest receiver in the history of your franchise. Derek Mason would have something to say about that. Yeah, and Derek Mason did it for a longer period of time than, than A.J. Brown. But to, to, to A.J.'s credit, like, it's been a while. I mean, a, it, it was for the Tennessee credit, Oilers. He it was, was the Tennessee Oilers avatar. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to go back that far, uh, not to mention the age of D, D- Mace, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a while. But anyway, there, there is, uh, the as the world turns with A.J. Brown, now Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver. I mean, look, if I'm his agent or anyone close to him, I'm giving him the exact same advice that Tennessee Oilers avatar did. Just stay off social media, man. Just just stop it. He just, got his guarantees, no, man. no need to do it. <laughs> he got paid. Um, but yeah, I mean, look. What do you look, tell a man who just got paid? I, he was on pace to be the greatest Titans receiver of all time. There's no doubt. There, You could argue whatever you want now. Right. But he was definitely on a trajectory to be the greatest of all time, which isn't saying much for that franchise. No offense to Derek Mason, who was a but great receiver. He, he was excellent. Excellent wide receiver. Great receiver. But, um, yeah, percentage chance of rain in your area, not percentage chance of the city that it will receive that precipitation. Anyway, uh, hopefully it doesn't rain on us tomorrow in Birmingham. The weather uh, looks okay. Which, but 40% it's chance of showers. It's, it's football. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Guest list is excellent as well. We hope to join us tomorrow on the streaming platforms. And back at it on Monday, our show includes Philip Fulmer on Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network.